Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, a man inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us the story of who Jesus not only was, but who Jesus is, and what he has accomplished and its implications for us and for our world. So Matthew chapter 26, so we'll be considering the whole chapter, uh, but I'm not going to read all 60-some verses, 70 verses. Uh, we are going to read just uh, the first 35 verses, and, uh, and then a, a little bit at the end. Okay, so still an extended reading, but not as extended as it could be. Okay, Matthew chapter uh, 26, uh, this is God's word for us, his people. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it was written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it. Drink of it, all of you. For this is my body, or this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And then would you jump with me to verse 69. Verse 69. We'll read to the end of the chapter. This is after Jesus has been arrested and taken and tried before the high priest and found worthy of death. This is the end. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we consider uh, the last hours of your son's life before he was crucified, uh, the end of his time on this earth. Uh, In many ways, this is a dark passage and full of sadness. And so we need your help to understand it and to know its implications for us. And so would your Holy Spirit open our ears, open our eyes, and open our hearts to receive your word tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've noticed uh, something about my kids, and it is that stories create conflict in our house. Okay, and, and frankly, we, we're at the stage of life with our kids where pretty much everything creates conflict <laughs> in our house. Uh, but stories in particular create conflict. And this story is whether it's a, a television show or a movie or a book. And it creates conflicts because my kids argue over who gets to be which character in the story that they just heard about. So, for example, they have gotten into this show called Wild Crafts. It's a PBS show about these two brothers who go around and, 
and find out really cool stuff about animals. And uh, so there's been an ongoing argument about how in our house about who is which of the brothers. And then Georgia kind of gets disturbed by the whole gender thing, and then she wants to you know, be one of the girl characters uh, in the show. We, when we hear stories, tend to be drawn to certain characters, don't we? We, we identify with certain characters in stories, whether they are true or fictional. We want to be like them, or we see something similar about them that we see in our own lives, and we identify with characters and stories. As Matthew tells us the story of the end of Jesus' life, as Jesus progresses towards the cross, towards his death, Matthew does not give us very many characters that we would want to identify with. I mean, think about this chapter. Matthew has told us all of this glorious truth about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And then we get to chapter 26, and the religious leaders plot to kill him. Judas betrays him for a fairly small amount of money. His friends, his closest friends, his disciples run away from him at, his, at the hour of his greatest need, and Peter denies him. Not very many characters that we would want to identify with, right? Except one. Matthew, as he tells the story, gives us one character that he wants to draw us towards. And it is this nameless woman who comes to Jesus and pours oil on his head. It's this woman who doesn't betray, who doesn't plot, who doesn't run away, who does not deny, but who worships. This woman who takes incredible social and financial risks in order to show honor to Jesus, in order to celebrate him, in order to demonstrate his worth and his value. And the point of the contrast between this woman's response and everyone else's response in this chapter is to say, you should want that for your life. You should want a life that demonstrates the worth, the value of Jesus. You should want a life that honors Him, that is poured out for His honor, for His glory. You should want that. But how does that happen? How do our lives reflect the action of this woman at the beginning of chapter 26? How does that begin to happen in us? Well, it is not so much by reflecting on her as it is reflecting on Jesus as Matthew presents him to us. And so what I want to do tonight is to consider what Matthew shows us about Jesus in this chapter. And we'll find that as he tells us about Jesus and demonstrates all of his actions in this chapter, that Matthew is leading us to worship. 
And he is leading us to worship because of what Jesus does and because of how Jesus does it. So first of all, what Jesus does should lead us to this life of honor, this life of worship that reflects the action of this woman. When she pours oil on Jesus' head, uh, it is not just an expensive gift. She connects to the symbolism of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when someone had oil poured on their head, it was a marker. It marked that person as chosen by God. So usually, you poured oil on the head of kings and priests. Very special and unique individuals. And when the oil was poured on their head, they were given titles. They were given labels uh, that showed their significance. And we can see this in this chapter. The oil is poured on Jesus' head. And then three labels, three titles that have been swirling throughout this gospel converge here in this chapter. Look with me in verses 63 and 64. This is Jesus at at his trial before the high priest. It says, but read these with me. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, there's one label, the Son of God, there's the second one. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man, the third one, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There are a lot, there's a lot we could say about these three titles. But one thing that unifies them is that they are all drawn from the prophets of the Old Testament. And they're drawn from the expectation that there would be a significant individual come from God. An individual set apart, chosen by God, and he would be given the title... Messiah Christ, which means anointed one, son of God, son of man. And this individual would be sent by God, set apart, chosen by God for a very unique task. Now, what was that task? Well, that what is answered with the when of this chapter, chapter 26. We have to keep in mind as we read chapters 26 and 27 of Matthew when it happens. All that occurs here happens during the festival of the Passover. It's a celebration that God had given to his people that remembered what God had done for them. How he had rescued them out of oppression and slavery in Egypt. And so year after year, God's people would sit down at this meal and remember what God had done. But as they did that over and over again, they began not only to look back, but to look forward. And this meal of the Passover became a meal not only of remembering what God had done, but also anticipating what God would do. Because the prophets told the people of God that God would intervene on behalf of his people again. That he would bring about a new exodus. That he would lead his people to freedom 
once again, and it would be a greater freedom than the freedom from slavery in Egypt. It would be a freedom from slavery to sin and death. And God would not only lead His people on this new exodus, but He would lead all of His creation out of slavery into freedom, out of death into life. And who would lead this new exodus as the representative of God? The anointed one. The Messiah. The Son of God. The Son of Man. Would be the one who would lead God's people, all who belong to Him, out of death into life. Out of slavery into freedom. And that was what Jesus was about. That's what Jesus is about right now. That is what He does. When He says that He has come to bring the kingdom of heaven, it means that He has come to bring renewal, restoration, rescue from slavery to sin and death into the freedom of life. And that is why this extravagant display of honor was what Jesus called a beautiful act. This woman was demonstrating the value of what Jesus was doing. And his disciples missed it. And they missed it and they criticized her because they were more focused on what money could accomplish rather than what the Messiah was accomplishing. It's why we have to be very careful with the relationship between adoration and action. We've seen in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus calls us to action. He calls us to service, and in fact, he calls us to serve the poor and the needy, right? Right at the end of chapter 25 last week. If you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So Jesus calls us to action. But what the disciples missed was not, they weren't wrong in desiring to help the poor, they were wrong in their adoration of money over Jesus. They demonstrated that they trusted money and what it could do more than they trusted Jesus and what He was doing. And that is why if we are going to serve in the way that Jesus has called us to serve, and He has called us to serve, He has called us to sacrificial love and service to each other and to the people around us. But that service must always begin in worship. It must be motivated by worship, and it must be sustained by worship. Seeing and celebrating what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do has to be the soil out of which our acts of service, our acts of obedience grow. Now, here's the problem. We should want to be like this woman 
in her act of worship, demonstrating the value, the greatness, the honor of Jesus. We should want that, and I think most of us in this room want that. But the problem is, Peter is our daddy. Right? If, if you have with any authenticity sought to follow Jesus, you know the tears at the end of this chapter, don't you? You know the tears of longing for your life to demonstrate the honor, the greatness, the worth of Jesus. But the frustration of your failure, of your life, your words instead denying His greatness and His worth and His beauty and His power. So what do we do? If we long for that worship, how do we get there? Well, we need to see that Matthew takes us not only to what Jesus does, but he leads us to worship by how Jesus does it. When the woman pours the oil on Jesus' head, Jesus interprets that action as more than just saying that he was the Messiah. Right? He says in verse 12, This woman has anointed me, not just as the anointed one, the Messiah, the coming king, but she has anointed me in preparation for my burial. So we need to think about the relationship between Jesus, anointed as the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, and anointed for death, for burial. And we see the relationship between those two in verses 36 to 46. And we didn't read these verses, but Matthew tells us about Jesus uh, taking his disciples out into a garden, and he is beginning to feel the weight of what he will experience on the cross. And so he goes out to pray, and he asks the disciples to pray with him. And Jesus' prayer involves two requests. The first request is in regards to a cup. He says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. And the image there is drawn from Isaiah, where God's wrath, God's judgment is seen as a cup that is poured out on those who have rebelled against him. And so Jesus knows that it is the plan of his Father, it is what he has committed himself to, to go to the cross and drink the cup of God's judgment. But he is struggling with that. And that leads him to a second request. He not only prays about the cup, but then he says, Father, your will be done. Astute readers of Matthew should recognize that. When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he taught us to call God Father. And then what is the first thing he told us to ask for? He told us to ask for the kingdom, right? The new exodus, God renewing and restoring all, the th- all things. And what does that mean? How does Jesus explain that request? He says, pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So you see Jesus anointed as the Messiah, the one who is going to lead this new exodus. How is that accomplished? Father, your will be done. I will take the cup of your wrath in order to bring this restoration, in order to bring this redemption. And why does he have to do that? Why does Jesus have to go to the cross and drink the judgment of God, drink the wrath of God? Well, think about this meal that he shares with his disciples. It's the Passover meal. And remember the story of the Passover. Uh, There's a lamb that is sacrificed and blood that's put on the door. And the imagery was God was bringing judgment on Egypt. But for God's people, that judgment fell on the lamb rather than falling on them. And so they were rescued. They were given life instead of death. And Jesus, as he sits down at that meal with his disciples, he reinterprets it. And he says, now I am the lamb. I am the one who will suffer the judgment and wrath of God on your behalf. This is my body. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that you can be in a covenant, in a relationship with God. And why do we need Jesus to do that for us? We'll think about who He is sitting at the table with. What does He tell His disciples right after He takes the Passover with Him? After He says, I'm being given for you for the forgiveness of sins. He, said, he takes them out in the Mount of Olives and He says, you will all fall away. Jesus died because his disciples ran. Jesus took the cup of the wrath of God on their behalf, on our behalf. Because of our sin, because of our failure, so that we could drink the cup of life that he offers to us. Think about what Jesus has called his disciples to throughout this gospel. We saw last week he told them to be alert, to be awake. He tells them twice to take up their cross and to follow him. He tells them to faithfully confess the truth of who he is, the Messiah, even at the risk of their own lives. The disciples fail on every account in this chapter. They go out to pray with Jesus and he tells them to watch and what do they do? They fall asleep. He walks towards the cross and they run the other way. He stands in the court of the high priest and is falsely accused of being a blasphemer. And Peter stands outside and swears by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 
God of heaven and earth, that he doesn't know who Jesus is. And what does Jesus do for those disciples? He says, here. Here is my body. Here is my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And that is why the tears of Peter are not the end of the story. Right? Peter goes on to live a life that honors Jesus. He becomes the foundation stone of this new community that, get, that Jesus was gathering that exists to this day in this room. Jesus went on to live a life of worship to Jesus. Why? Because of his skill? Because of his ingenuity? Because uh, he had some remarkable character of courage? No. Because of that table. Peter went on to live a life of worship because Jesus' body and blood are for failures. They are for those who walk away, those who deny, those who sleep when they should be awake. Jesus' table is is for failures. The brown-throated weaver is a bird uh, that lives in uh, the area of Africa where my family and I lived for a couple of years uh, in southeast and central Africa. And there are bushes uh, that you'll see that have these brown circles on them, all over them. And at first you think it is a part of the plant, but it is actually a result of the work of the brown-throated weaver. And they build these circle nests all on one bush. You'll see six, seven, eight of them. And who builds the nest is the male. The male brown-throated weaver builds a nest. And so you'll have multiple males build multiple nests on a bush because that's how they find a mate. The female bird comes and inspects all of the nests and decides which home she likes the best and chooses the mate that goes with that home. Right? To completely revolutionize the dating scene. Right? (laughs) When we hear the call to live a life of worship to Jesus, Our natural inclination is to think like a male brown-throated weaver. We think that we have to build a life that is worthy of him. So that when he comes and inspects us, he says, Okay, yes, yeah, you, you, I'll come dwell in you. Because your your nest is good enough and is better uh, than those other people over there. And Jesus, at the Passover table, completely overturns that mindset. We are His, not because we can build a house worthy of Him. We are His because He has built the house. He has set 
the table with His body and with His blood. And He calls us unworthy failures to that table. To know the forgiveness of sins. To know His renewing new exodus work in us and through us. So which character do you want to be? We should want to be this woman who pours out her, her expensive ointment for the honor of Jesus. We should want our lives to look like that. But our lives will never look like that unless we identify with Peter. Unless we identify with that character in the story. Unless we know the depth of our failure, of our need. And more than that, know the welcome of Jesus who gives His body, who sheds His blood to make us into people who live lives of worship for Him. Let's pray.